The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Inner hall. There are probably five, six chairs in here if you'd like to come inner hall. You seem so far away. And maybe you like being far away. Um, but then, so it's fine to stay out there, but there are some chairs in here. Good evening, and uh, this evening I'd like to do the second talk in a eight-part series on the seven factors of awakening. <clears throat> the last week I gave the introduction to the seven, and today we'll do the f- discuss the first one, which is the factor of awakening of mindfulness, the mindfulness factor of awakening. And uh, awake. Uh, the, uh, what, one of the things that I find very interesting about <clears throat> early Buddhist teachings, teachings of the Buddha, was the times when he was very succinct about talking about uh, what he was teaching, what his message was. He did not present a creed. He did not present a belief or a, something you have to believe in, a, in, kind of in terms of a creed, but rather he p- pointed towards qualities that we develop, practices you do and qualities that you develop. And uh, there's a lot of different qualities, inner, inner personal qualities to be developed. And one of those is the seven factors of awakening. And these are, uh, could be said, somewhat ordinary factors that's present in all of us at some time, but they can be developed and become strong, they become heightened. And uh, as they become heightened, they serve us in, in helping us become freer helping us not be so entangled and caught in the world that we live in. They help us to have greater clarity so we can see more deeply into our lives. And one of the important aspects of this tradition of awakening is to really have deep insight into the nature of ourselves, the world we live in, and an insight which is also liberating and freeing. So mindfulness is the first one in this endeavor. And uh, the word for mindfulness is sati, uh, the Pali word, S-A-T-I. And um, in, uh, when, when uh, people like Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg first started teaching this tradition here in America in the mid-1970s, um, there was no mindfulness stress, stress reduction programs yet. And so, the, to use the word mindfulness to translate sati was a fine thing to do, still a fine thing to do. But over these years, one of the wonderful developments is that uh, mindfulness has burst out of its Buddhist container into the popular culture. And in doing so, the word mindfulness, understanding of it, has changed its meaning in a variety of ways. And, uh, and some of them are not quite the same as what it was meant in the early tradition. And, like in this factor of awakening. And um, so, in, in the simplest way, I think, of a sati as a factor of awakening 
is a heightened awareness. Take the ordinary capacity to be aware and it becomes heightened, strengthened, developed. And the metaphor that can be used for this, an ancient metaphor, is that of a lotus that grows out of the muddy water and as it blossoms, it's unsmeared, unstained by the muddy water. Its stalk goes down into the mud, uh, so it's connected, but uh, as it blossoms, as it blooms, it's not, no longer uh, touched by all the mud and the muddy waters. So the same thing uh, with awareness. We, may, we, may, we, we remain rooted in this muddy world, um, but there's something about the nature of awareness, the heart, the mind, that becomes unsullied by it, unstained by it. And so, so this sati is this awareness that becomes unsullied, unstained when it becomes strong. If you go back to the, um, these, these, the teachings of the Buddha, what, uh, he never tells people, do mindfulness. Like, be mindful of your breath. Be mindful of your eating. Be, you know, my mother used to tell me, Gil, be mindful. And it's probably I did, because I didn't listen to her that I ended up being a, you know, a mindfulness teacher so that I might st- still have a chance to learn. But, uh, you know, do, the, do this mindfulness thing, you know. So, uh, but if you look at the way it's talked about in the ancient text, it's, mindfulness is not something that is done. It's not like a verb, an activity. It's more like a state, a noun, of something that you... And these are the verbs connected to mindfulness. It's something that you um, uh, enter, abide, cultivate, and establish. So you... you, you I like, especially like the word abide in, you dwell in. Uh, so you, mindfulness is something, sati is something you dwell in. It's something that you establish, uh, you enter into. And so to, to understand what this might mean, I think maybe it's helpful to think of some concept we have where those verbs uh, apply to quite, quite well, I think. And the one that comes to mind is peace. I don't think we do peace exactly. You can be peaceful, I suppose. But peace is something that you um, abide in, you dwell in, you, you live in. Peace is something you can cultivate and develop. But uh, you don't, peace is not a verb. Uh, you know, you don't do peace, you know, let's go peace. <laughs> you know, we should all peace better. Maybe we should make a verb out of it. Let's peace some more. And, um, but rather, uh, let's establish the peace. Let's, uh, you know, we have certain individuals in our culture that are, that's their job, establish the peace. And um, so, uh, so it's a state. Peace is a state, and you can enter that state, you can abide in the state, you can cultivate the state, um, uh, establish a state, but you don't do the peace. Does that make sense? Somewhat? Somewhat? And so uh, those, ver- those verbs are the verbs associated with sati. And so so rather than being an active thing of now let's look and apply ourselves and try to recognize and all this doing, this heightened awareness, uh, the heightened awareness of sati is, I think of it as as an awareness. Awareness is something that you can enter into, you can abide in awareness. Uh, Awareness is not something you have to do. Maybe you can do it sometimes, maybe it feels that way. But, um, you know, I think one of the most, you know, kind of, 
tantalizing little exercises in this kind of awareness world is uh, to take on the exercise. You can try it right now. Just stop being aware. Okay? You know, you've, been, you've been trying to be mindful for all, all evening. Cut it out. <laughs> Just stop being aware. Okay, raise your hand if you succeeded. <laughs> the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, you can turn it off maybe by going to sleep. You can drug yourself and knock yourself out. You know, you, you know, and you could, but in the ordinary states of consciousness, you can't just like decide to stop being aware. In fact, if someone tells you to stop being aware and you try, you kind of look in there, how, where's the button? And you know, how, do you, how do you do that? For many people, they find it brings a kind of little bit of a heightened kind of, not exactly, maybe self-consciousness, but a heightened awareness of, you know, well, what is this? What's going on? You know, you know if, if, if it's not something I'm doing, then what is it? Or what's my relationship to it? Is this making some sense? Some of you feel that way? So, um, so uh, sati is developing, a, having a heightened awareness. And like the lotus that grows out of the muddy water, um, some, uh, it's, it is, it's something that makes us, in some ways, more intimate with the world while not entangled with it. So that's why the stalk is still in the mud. Some people feel like if there's a heightened awareness, well, let me say, so this heightened awareness has some qualities which are interesting. And the most important one is the heightened awareness um, stands out in relief as something, as a state. And mostly when people go around their life, living their life, they're using awareness, we're aware of things, but we are not aware that we're aware so much. Rather, we're involved with what we're aware of, what we're thinking about. So, you know, if I'm, you know, I don't know, at a restaurant, we're looking at a menu, and it's, I'm really hungry and desperate to eat some food, uh, I'm much more interested in reading the menu and seeing what's there than, be, than knowing that I'm awa- knowing, but being aware that I'm reading the menu. Because the menu is important. Or, you know, when I was a teenager chasing certain people <laughs> that were attractive. I didn't have any interest in, I didn't even know you could be aware of, you know, be aware that I was aware, you know, be aware of, you know, that I was, you know, to be aware that I was aware of these people. <laughs> I was just, you know, it was just the people. <laughs> Me and those people. But the fact that I was, you know, so the idea that I was aware, operating in the field of awareness, with awareness, you know, I had blinders on. That wasn't interesting. I mean, those people are much more interesting than my awareness. Um, or if you want to, you know, so all these things we're afraid of, that we want, that we're angry with, and the object of our concern can be so engrossing, the object of what we're thinking about in our mind is so engrossing that we're swept into it and we don't know that we're aware while we're engaged in it. Does that make a little bit of sense? And now, awareness doesn't have any monetary value. You know, there's a lot of ways in which it can be overlooked as, as not being very important because you know, those attractive people are more interesting or the money is more interesting or running away from the mountain lion is more interesting or, you know, all kinds of things are more interesting seemingly, but awareness is kind of plain. Is that going to get you a promotion, you know, in and of itself? 
um, the, um, you know, so there's not a lot of support for the idea that being aware of awareness is a useful thing to do. To have awareness become a heightened thing like stands out and highlight. And um, so, so the cultivation of, so what happens as awareness becomes stronger and we know that we're aware, what it means we're not so entangled in what we know, what we're involved in. And this uh, disentanglement is pulling away from being caught, focused, fixated, addicted, um, preoccupied with our concerns, is a movement towards freedom. And so this awareness becomes, you start, at some point awareness stands out in relief, in highlight. And the fact that we're aware seems pretty special. Because in that awareness are qualities of peace, qualities of freedom, qualities of clarity, qualities of uh, dis, un, unentangled with our experience. And that feels really nice. Some people are concerned that that makes them a little bit too aloof, indifferent, they're pulling back, pulling away, they're not involved. But it's actually the opposite. What I find is that the more the awareness is heightened and free and independent of what it knows, the more clarity there is, the more the clear uh, lines of awareness are there, the more I can see clearly what's there, the more intimacy there is. And it's remarkable to have awareness become very strong, very peaceful, very much in the present moment. You're really here, and you go outside or you go anywhere, and the objects you see kind of shine and glisten. Wow. Or they see this person. Wow. 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 The wow factor is pretty cool. <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, when you're not entangled, when you're not caught in what's there. And so there is a kind of independence, a kind of separation in this freedom of awareness, but it's not the separation of indifference, it's not the, of aloofness. It's a separation of untying the knots that keep us caught, tied up in other people, other things, other kinds of stuff. And it also unties the knots that keeps us knotted up in ourselves. And this is one of the reasons why it's really useful to, you know, to heighten the awareness, to kind of ri- have the awareness rise out of our self-preoccupations, because then our knots that we have begin to dissolve, begin to re- relax and make space. We're not so self-consciously caught up in ourselves, which is a great thing. So uh, it's a kind of intimacy So um, with the will, more direct seeing it. So I think of mindfulness this heightened awareness, giving us the opportunity to look reality right in the eye. I see you, reality, just here you are. Um, and in that seeing it directly, having the, having the mind, having the inner mind, the inner life, uh, be able to see and be present unwaveringly, meaning without being swayed by what we see, without being reactive to what we see, to stay clear and open and present. You know, in, in Christianity they say, you know, if someone um, you know, hits you, uh, offer them the other cheek. 
I think it's a very profound teaching. It's, I, I love it because it means that uh, uh, you're free enough to not punch back or not run away. There's a kind of movement towards uh, beautiful nonviolence and love in that, in that thing. But in Buddhism, it's not quite the same. In Buddhism, if someone hits you, um, don't hit back, don't run away, look them in the eye. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, confront them, see what's going on. M- maybe with kindness, it doesn't have to be harsh, but look in the eye. I've known people who've looked their, uh, people who are violent towards them right in the eye and the person has stopped their violence. And pro- but don't think it always works. <laughs> you know, don't. But this, this ability to look reality right in the eye, whatever is going on, and keep your equanimity, keep your balance, to have the unwaveringness inside, not contract, not close down, not attack, not blame. So this idea of heightened awareness that is really present for what is here and then uh, and able to do that in a way that we become independent of what we know. And this is a, you know, you can kind of maybe memorize this little line and then try to make sense of it later. That it, um, uh, with mindfulness, we're learning to be independent of what is known. With mindfulness, we know what is happening in the present moment, and we want to become independent of what is known. Does that make sense? And exactly what that means, you know, uh, is part of the exploration of this practice. So, to develop the enlightenment factor of sati, of mindfulness, is to develop this heightened awareness, which is more like a state that we are in, a field of awareness that, um, that we're definitely aware, we're definitely in the present moment, we're established, we're rooted here. But there's a, a spaciousness, an openness, a clarity, a peacefulness about what we are aware of in the present moment. So an, another analogy that's sometimes uh, used in the Buddhist tradition is, uh, uh, is used sometimes is, is um, to have, uh, like for example, it's used sometimes with thoughts. When thoughts arise in the mind, they arise, they arise like the clouds in an empty sky. So a thought arises and you see them in all the spaciousness in the mind and they just float by and maybe you pick them up and get involved if you, it's useful. Whereas oftentimes when we're thinking, we're involved in our thoughts. And not only that, but the, cl- the, the sky is filled with clouds. You know, it's thunderstorms. <laughs> you know, it's, and not only that, maybe it's the, you know, the clouds have come down and it's foggy and we can't even find our way, right? Uh, we're so thick and congested with thoughts and concerns and fears and anxieties and desires and wants that it gets claustrophobic. But as the heightened awareness develops, it's kind of like we develop more space, lots of space within which we can know what's happening. And in that space, a lot of things don't, react, don't bother us as much. We tend to be bothered more when the mind is claustrophobic, when everything is impinging on us and coming down on us and everything, our thoughts are kind of coming rapid fire one after the other. And, but as we cultivate this heightened awareness, 
there's more space and it's easier to have this non-reactive, unwavering mind. To look reality right in the eye and be present, but not be caught in it. So I hope this makes some sense. So in the, uh, in the teachings of the Buddha then, he has practices with which to establish this heightened awareness. And there's a whole series of uh, practices that he offers. And these are the practices that are called, the, uh, the, the primary categories are called the, uh, the, um, for, uh, for the satipatthana, the ways of establishing sati. And, uh, and for those, the verbs used are not mindfulness. It's quite interesting that if you go through this, the Buddha, those of you who know this, there's a discourse called the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it's all about, you know, cultivating this mindfulness. But the activities of what you're supposed to do have nothing to do with mindfulness. <laughs> the word's not used. It's all these other things that you do. That uh, then, so, for example, um, one of the exercises is uh, visualizing or contemplating uh, corpses at different stages of decay. Now, here we go. <laughs> These Buddhists. Party poopers again. There we go, death. Corpses, gross. Someone actually, yesterday, Sunday morning, came and gave me the URL of a website of a place some, uh, where... I guess that uh, when people, you know, some people donate their bodies for science and for medical reasons. Well, I guess it becomes very interesting for people into forensic studies or whatever to uh, study what happens to a human body when it's left out in the open and fields to decay. So they have this kind of like this body field and uh, where they just go to study and see what happens when, you know. And, um, and apparently they have a website with photographs and videos. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> So that's going to make you your lotus shrink. <laughs> but um, but this this uh, you know but the, the exercise is to visualize so you can visualize it as as uh, in a sanitized ways as you want. But there's something about the encounter with death, which wakes a lot of people up. You know, it, sometimes when you contemplate your own death, or you're present with someone who's dying or dead. Uh, you're probably not thinking about your taxes. You're probably not thinking about your high school sweetheart who jilted you. You're just there. And uh, very present. And, uh, and there's a kind of a heightened awareness that can come with that existential meeting of, uh, you know, something that's really core and essential to our life. It's kind of like everything becomes, sometimes things become still, present. Just here is very important. And not a few people, when they're present for someone who's dying or when, you know, being with someone after they've died, unless they're grieving a lot, there's something about the heightened awareness. Things become very still. There's a spaciousness. There's a stillness. There's sometimes that can be there. So one of the exercises is to visualize a corpse at different levels of, of death. And for some people, I think the reason why this is given is that done a certain way, for some people, it can kind of wake them up, kind of heightened awareness. Wow, I'm alive now. 
It's like the exercise I'd, I've told many times I'd, I used to do for quite a while. I did it kind of... What I noticed was that I was um, very much drawn to um, old photographs. And the older the better, as long as there was a person in it. And, and you know, they were so old that I knew the person was dead. And I would go over and I would study the picture and I'd look at the person in the picture and I'd look at their eyes and their face especially. And it, some, some old photographs are very, very clear. And it's so clear that you can see the expression on their face, but sometimes you can see the, the expression in their eyes. And sometimes, I was really surprised, there's a glistening, like, like, a, like a spark in the eyes in these old photographs. And sometimes there's not, and whatever. And I would just study and look at it. And what I realized, what, why I was drawn to it, was that I had this kind of feeling or reflection or intuition that that was their moment to be alive. That was their moment, their spark of consciousness to be alive, that moment. And this is mine. What are you going to do with this wonderful spark of consciousness that you have your allotted time to live with? Are you going to lose the opportunity to kind of really live your conscious moments because you're still kind of angry with your jilted girlfriend or boyfriend from high school 40 years later? You know, or whatever, or you're fantasizing about something in the future, or you know, all kinds of things. Are you this? It's this spark. And so, when I looked at those old photographs, there was something that brought that heightened awareness to me of this moment here. So, these exercises in this discourse of four foundations of mindfulness are different angles and ways of bringing up a heightened awareness. The biggest set of exercises have to do with mindfulness of the body. Uh, directing the attention and becoming aware, observing the, the, your bodily experience. Your breathing. Breathing is one of the great ways of doing meditation and developing a quiet, still, focused, heightened awareness. Developing a greater awareness of uh, the sensations and feelings in your body. Um, in a variety of different ways. There's also... A meditation called the 32 parts of the body in as part of this uh, exercises where you visualize all the different parts of your body or not all but 32 different parts your hair your skin your eyes your saliva your liver your it goes through and lists all these 32 things and um, I've never done it but it's a very not much but it's a very popular uh, meditation practice in Southeast Asia and Bob Stahl who uh, teaches MBSR and El Camino and is a teacher in Santa Cruz Every year he does like a three or four month class of teaching people meditation of 32 parts of the body. And he finds it very effective. And I just happened to run into Bob Stahl, you know, just, you, know you run into your Buddhist friends in different places, right? On a Friday. And um, guess where I met him? What? A massage parlor, mindfulness of the body. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> I met him, I ran into him at the anatomy lab at the local community college. The anatomy lab. We were there looking at corpses. <laughs> (laughs) 
It was great. <laughs> he, brings his, he brings his class, then he teaches the 32 meditation parts, 32 parts of the body to the, to then after they've done, it, you know, done this old meditation, to go and look at dissected corpses to see these parts. I brought the people I'm training to become Buddhist chaplains because Buddhist chaplains need to have some deeper connection and involvement and relationship to death and dying and, and their relationship to it. And, um, and, and both groups um, need to be able to have, have enough self-awareness and capacity to know how to look reality right in the eye and be unwavering, to be independent, to really be present. Because a, a chaplain needs to meet people in the, some of the you know, most tragic crises of human life and be able to offer some care, be able to be present and not, you know, a chaplain doesn't want to go into the emergency room with some terrible tragedies happened and, and just like, oh, I can't, I'm so scared. This, I'm so upset. This is so awful. <laughs> we had one person being trained once who, um, it wasn't, who uh, was being trained as a chaplain and he was doing his volunteer chaplaincy work and came and told me, I would go to visit these people and I would start crying and they would say, I thought you were here to help me, but <laughs> I feel like I have to help you. So the idea to have this ability, to have this ability to have independent awareness, to be present, unwavering, open, receptive, and present for people is a huge gift. And so one of the ways that we do this with this chaplaincy program is we go to this anatomy lab and spend some time. It's done very respectfully. The woman who get the anatomist who gives us a tour and talk, I mean, the, her reverence for these people who uh, donated their bodies, an act of generosity, to allow people to learn and develop and have these kinds of things. It's really something. So you, it's, it's, it's a reverent place, this place we go. It's, it feels like kind of a temple to go into this anatomy lab and be with them. So all these exercises and how to cultivate a heightened awareness there's exercises in being aware of your mind states. If you become really keenly aware that your, that your mind is filled with greed, is colored and influenced by greed, you start becoming independent of your greed. If you really know and recognize your mind is filled with hate, you start becoming independent of your hate. There's something about the knowing, really clearly knowing. Remember, like the lotus coming out of the mud, Really, oh, this is what's going on. This is what's—it's hard to really buy into these things so strongly. And so, or to know that the mind is is uh, is uh, scattered or distracted. The mind stops being so distracted as soon as you know it. Or if you know the mind is stable and concentrated, rather than making you less concentrated, that helps actually the mind get more stable, more still. The more you understand the mind is expansive, big mind, awareness is huge, the more expansive it gets. One of the great experiences is to have a sense that the boundaries of your awareness, that there is no boundaries to awareness. If you kind of just be quiet, and some people can do this, it's not always possible, but, and feel, you kind of sense what it's like to be aware right now, and if you sense the, in the peaceful quiet of awareness, the quiet part of awareness, still awareness, 
and then feel your way into the edges of it. How far away, f- where is the edges of awareness for you? Is, is the edges of awareness at the you know, edges of your body? Is there some feeling that awareness is beyond the body? So when the mind gets still and quiet, some people report that they have what's called a big mind, very open. So, so, so you recognize, oh, the mind is expansive. Helps the mind gets more expansive. To start recognizing how the mind operates is part of the exercise. Observing how the mind gets entangled and caught up. To observing how the mind, uh, uh, to observe how the mind develops this heightened mindfulness, this heightened awareness. Oh, there it is. Look at that. That helps it get stronger. So the tradition has these exercises you can do, but the purpose of the exercise is to develop this heightened awareness. And that heightened awareness then becomes um, the foundation for the next six factors of awakening, which are investigation, energy, uh, joy, joy, (laughs) tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And so each of those, as I said at the beginning, are ordinary qualities that come into your life here and there, probably less often than you wish. But uh, the practice, this practice of mindfulness is a practice that begins to develop these qualities to become stronger and stronger. And the stronger they are for you, the, uh, the more they're a strength for you, the more they're available to support you and guide you and make life easier the more they help you become free, the more they help you, in, hopefully in the most loving and, and uh, kind way, to be able to stand still and look reality, whatever reality is at the moment, to look reality right in the eye and be present with a mind, a heart, which doesn't waver. It's not for or against, doesn't get caught. With an awareness, a heart and a mind, which is present, intimate, but independent of what is known, not dependent on anything. So that's the first factor of awakening. Oh, we have a question. I would like a question. Can you say your name? Michelle. Yes. Um, so when you say independent of what is known. Yes. Uh, what does it mean? So, yeah. what does it mean to be independent of what's known? Like, to uh, to be uh, uh, to be um, not under the influence whatsoever of what you know. Facts, details, your whatever it is, history, whatever. Okay. If I say if I say to you right here now that women who hold uh, mics that have blue tops are not really so cool. <laughs> uh, so, could, are you able to hear that? And just like, you just whatever, you know. You know, just, you know, just look at me and say, what's this guy saying? Look at me, hear me, be with me. But it doesn't, doesn't move you, it doesn't affect you, it doesn't, you know, your heart, your mind doesn't waver, you don't, you don't contract. That's to be independent of me saying such a silly thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, thanks. Another question. Yes. Yeah, my ear, right behind you. Uh, so, uh, Meg uh, 
advised me to listen to your Martin Luther King Day speech, which, I mean, uh, Dharma talk. And You came here once, didn't you? Do, didn't I'm Martin Linda, Luther, hi. Yeah, I know, I know. Didn't you come here and teach Martin Luther King Day for... No, I came about Gandhi, Gandhi, Gandhi. long ago. Yeah. Um, so I listened to yeah. that talk, and I, I liked it a lot. So just going from what you just said to the uncool woman holding a mic, you know. <laughs> oh, yellow is really the problem. <laughs> um, on that day, you, you came to a place in your talk where you urged people to respond to the suffering yes. of racism and violence around us and to be active. Um, so I was just wondering about the matter of just not getting ruffled, I mean, if you're yes. that independent. Great, great question. Great question. So there's a distinction between what your um, awareness does, what your mind does, in a sense, uh, and what your body and voice does. So uh, 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 what we're trying to do in this practice is to have a mind or an awareness that can hold everything in a very accepting way. But we have an intelligence and we have actions that can be very, that, that actually can engage and do something. Two different things. So the mind, the heart, is unwavering. The heart can receive anything. But your mouth might say, no, stop. So something should be stopped. Something should be said yes to, something's no. We have to do some things in the world. If your neighbor is sick, uh, maybe you want to go shopping or bring them some food. But you can do that without the stress in the heart and the mind. You can engage in, uh, in, uh, in uh, overcoming racism in this country, which is a very important thing to do. It's, I think it's one of the big social fault lines in our society. I think we should all be much more concerned about this issue. And, and it's an issue for everyone here and actively be concerned and learn about it. Um, but our heart doesn't have to waver. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be uh, uh, shriveled up. We don't have to feel um, blame. We don't have to, you know... Uh, it's possible for the mind to stay peaceful while our actions are very active and very engaged. Is this making some sense? It's a... Uh Fine line. It's a subtle matter. Yeah. Uh, the, the heightened freedom of the mind, of awareness. So awareness can be unruffled by no matter what the difficulty is in the world. So is this person who takes action against racism and violence sort of like Mr. Data on Star Trek? He doesn't really feel anything? I doubt it. Yeah. So, um, so I think... Uh, uh, it's that so how to, how to describe this is not that easy for me at least and then, but that part but the simple way to say it is that part of the mind or the heart that um, contracts that clings that that uh, somehow gets shriveled up and tight that gets afraid that has hate that has lust and greed that doesn't get triggered and when that doesn't get triggered that doesn't color or influence the state of heightened awareness. That, that the peacefulness and the calm or the subtleness of heightened awareness stays intact. That, 
So to have an awareness that has that ability to receive and be present in that way is this liberation. Other parts of our mind can be active. You know, we can, our, discer- our discernment say, I, that's, you know, I better think about that. I don't think that's right. I think I better say something about it. But seeing something as wrong and, not, and wanting to say something or do something can all be done with an unruffled mind. And we, could, we, and we can have sadness, we can have joy, we can have all the other things. But the awareness that's aware of all that, that, uh, that part that contracts doesn't contract. Getting closer to something that satisfies you? <laughs> yeah, he's nodding her head. I, I, I regret answering your question. I should have asked, asked you to answer the question. Too late. Too, I know. <laughs> See, Linda is my elder in Buddhism. She's been practicing longer than me, so I, I shouldn't have. I think you just spoke a thing that is not true. Really? How long have you been practicing? 1974? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but if you add up all your hours and my hours, I'm at your feet. Oh, but it's the quality of those hours that count. <laughs> I wasn't unruffled. Look at you, collapsed. <laughs> okay, so we should stop. People are late. Uh, the, uh, but, uh, let me see. Um, I, but I, I would like to have a question from... Um, I'm looking for a question. I'm going to ask a question. Um, who should ask a question? Um, Maybe Nirali. Do you have a question? Right in the other direction. Or a statement. Doesn't have to be a question. Quick question. Mm. How do you know what is right action? How do you know what's right action? (laughs) 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 Well... The, um, the, the short answer is that uh, the whole, uh, when, the, when the word right is used for different things like action, it, the reference point for understanding what right is, the, the word right here means like the appropriate tool, the right tool. So it's the appropriate uh, act, action that, um, that avoids causing harm and brings benefit to people healthy, appropriate benefit. So you have, to have some, you have to have some deep understanding of what is harmful and what is beneficial to be able to find your way with what is right action. Okay? really helps. Thank, Thank you. you. Anyway, so the reason I was asking for questions, I mean, I wanted the questions for sure, but we had these people who come here from the, uh, the, around the world who listen to us on Audio Dharma, and, uh, and sometimes they're curious to actually here in person, some of the people, they hear their voices on, you know, when they ask questions. And so, but the first two people ask questions, they never asked questions before, I think, here. That I didn't, so it didn't help this gentleman. But I think you've asked questions before. Yes. So, so I want to welcome anyone who's here, who's here first time, and you're listening to the Audio Dharma world. It seems like almost every day I come now, there's someone here. And so thank you for coming, and, and, uh, and I hope that... Um, 
this week, you can uh, give some uh, reflection on this idea of heightened awareness. When, are you, when is your awareness heightened? And is there freedom to be found in a kind of heightened sense of awareness? A heightened awareness that is not stressful. No strain in it. Relaxed awareness. So thank you all. I tried. <laughs> <laughs>